Hey, good morning, Hillcrest. There it is. All right, welcome. Welcome to our guests today. Seen some old friends this morning, some new friends as well. God bless you. Thanks for being here and worshiping with us. We also welcome our folks who are tuning in online today and for joining us in worship. We are glad to open God's word that it might go out all around the world. Pastor Jim is just on the front end of his sabbatical. This is an event that happens every seven years. This is his second one. He's hoping for a third. So uh, he's just on the front end of it. A sabbatical is a time for rest and, and a way to get out of your weekly routine so that you can focus on some other things. And certainly part of that is rest. But Pastor Jim has created himself a pretty ambitious list of things that he wants to accomplish over the next several weeks. And so there is a bullet point list for you in the Next Step Center if you're interested in finding out a little bit more about what Pastor Jim is up to during his sabbatical. Uh, one of the things he's up to right about now is hanging out with our missionaries in uh, London. So hopefully they're tuning in. They may have tuned into the last service, but hopefully they're all together and joining their church family at Hillcrest this morning. So we welcome them as well. Well, in Jim's absence and in keeping with our baseball theme, uh, we're going to be clearing the bullpen of all the, the preachers here uh, on the staff and taking our turns. Um, I happen to be leading off uh, this week. And so um, we're actually going to bring in a reliever somewhere in the middle of the deal. Um, uh, Brian Nall from the Pensacola Bay Baptist Association, our director, he'll be coming and joining us at some point during this series we call A Summer in the Minors. And so uh, Pastor Jim actually has been teaching from one of the minor prophets, Jonah. And I think it's, it's important to point out uh, right about now that Jim took eight weeks for four chapters in Jonah. And I'm going to cover 14 chapters of Hosea in the next 30 minutes. So, <laughs> But who's really keeping score on stuff like that? You know, that would be kind of petty, wouldn't it? Well, go, go ahead and be finding the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Why do we call these guys minors anyway? Well, it has nothing to do with their age. It has nothing to do with the importance of their message. Uh, it has everything to do with the length of their message. So these minor prophets get right to the point. You may recognize some of who we call the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Well, following them in your Bible are the 12 minor prophets. And those writings take us right up to the middle of your Bible where we move into the New Testament. So they're the very end, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And in true doubleheader form, Dr. Brian Wright will be teaching on the Minor Prophets as well over in Northwest Hall on Wednesday nights uh, this summer in Pastor Jim's absence. So be sure to check that out. Brian's a very gifted writer and teacher of God's word. And so you'll wanna be a part of that. Well, with all the Minor Prophets, we're gonna hear one or more of these messages to repent from sin to return to the Lord or to remember that God will ultimately triumph this is the common theme that the Lord speaks through all of his prophets and Hosea the first of the minor prophets we encounter in scripture is no exception among those prophets God chooses to speak in different ways as we saw throughout the book of Jonah, it really wasn't so much what Jonah said, but what Jonah did or didn't do that we learned something about our own relationship with God. Well, with Hosea, he recounts a very intimate story, one that cuts really close to home 
Because God uses Hosea's marriage as an illustration. Sometimes we need an illustration to formulate an image of what we're talking about. I'm reminded of a story of a young boy who's sitting at the kitchen table, very intently drawing a picture. His dad sees what's happening and he asks him, son, what are you working on? I'm drawing a picture of God, the boy replies, without looking up. His dad says, well, nobody knows what God looks like. And again, without looking up, the boy says, they will in a few minutes. (laughs) So in the few minutes that we have this morning, we're gonna look at this living illustration from Hosea's life. Not so much that we would see God, but that we would feel what God feels. God asks Hosea to illustrate the relationship between God and Israel, God's chosen people, by choosing for himself a wife who would not be faithful to him. Be my prophet in this way, God says. Demonstrate my pain by living it out in front of the people that I've called you to speak to on my behalf. Sometimes God's gonna ask us to do a hard thing as well. And that's what he asks of Hosea. So Hosea takes a wife. Now there's some debate about the promiscuity of this woman at the time of their marriage, but no debate about what she would and did become over time. God says, go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery and departing from the Lord. Hosea is obedient and chooses Gomer. Not a lot of folks naming their kids Gomer these days. It gets worse with the names. There's three children that are named in the first chapter. And it's likely that the first of these two is the child of Hosea and Gomer. And God tells Hosea to name this first boy Jezreel. The name is a reference to a battleground, a place of brokenness, of bloodshed that happened earlier in Israel's history. So he's got that hanging around his neck. The next two kids are Gomer's, but likely not Hosea's, but they're still married. Remember, this isn't really the girl trying to marry right second is a girl and gets the name no mercy the third is a boy and he gets the name not my children again you're not going to find these in your popular list of baby names but all of this is to parallel the relationship that God has with Israel in fact the writing in the first three chapters of Hosea weaves back and forth between Hosea's family and the people of Israel. Look at how the language works here. Call her name, no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Man, that's super strong language. God is using Gomer's kids to talk about his relationship with Israel. They've turned their back on God. They've turned toward other gods. It seems like he's just about done with these folks. So let's take a pause and figure out where we are in the world. Maybe you're familiar with King David or King Saul or King Solomon. 
So these guys were the first few kings while Israel was united, a united kingdom, if you will. It has nothing to do with England, however, okay? United Kingdom of Israel for our example this morning. Now we didn't call it that at the time because we didn't know it was gonna divide. However, after these first three kings, there was a debate about who should take the leadership. And so we ended up with a division. 10 tribes went with the Northern Kingdom and they called it Israel. And two tribes stayed back with the Southern Kingdom they called Judah. So this whole time, from the division to their eventual captivity, Israel, the Northern Kingdom, had bad kings. Eventually they decided on Samaria as their uh, capital. You know Samaria from the New Testament, the Samaritans. These are the folks that the Jews of Jerusalem despised. And it had something to do with this division, but maybe more so about what, uh, because of what happened between, uh, with these people between the time of their captivity and when they reappear in the New Testament. Now the southern kingdom, Judah, had their capital in Jerusalem. And the southern kingdom had a mixed, mixed bag of kings, some good, some bad. So Hosea is primarily talking to the northern kingdom, Israel. So here's the players, God, Israel, Hosea, Gomer, and us. You're gonna see yourself in these pages. I see myself in these pages. And even though it turns out that not many people are naming their kids Gomer these days, we are Gomer. We are Israel. And the prophet's warning to us is that we haven't been behaving properly. Now, before I lose you, good news is on the way. And in fact, it's already here. Let's pick it back up in verse number 10 in the first chapter of Hosea. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. This is a reference to the promise that God made to Abraham earlier, yes? In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited. Verse one of chapter two, say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. What started out with these names that seemed to show that God was releasing these people to their own desires, he now comes back with the promise that not my people will be his people. No mercy will receive mercy and the divided kingdom will be united again someday. So chapter two follows this same kind of format. A case is made against the evils that Israel had done and then provision made for their return. Uh, check, it, check this out. At the end of the first half of chapter two in verse 13, it says, and I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with a ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me. That's the bottom of the barrel right there. Things had gotten so far off track that the Israelites had forgotten God. Even so, at the end of chapter two, verse 23, I will have mercy on no mercy, 
And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Moving into chapter three, we read that God says to Hosea, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. I love the inclusion of the sacred raisin cakes here because I believe this to be God's indictment against the traditional holiday fruitcake. Everybody with me? You see that in the scripture? I probably should be teachable on that moment. Let's stay, let's stay uh, focused on where we are. What does Hosea do with that command from the Lord? Well, again, he is obedient and he provides another illustration of God's grace. Hosea says, so I bought her. There was a price to pay. Gomer's life had gotten to the place where she needed to be redeemed from her bondage, from her captivity. And Hosea was willing to do that. He redeemed his wife. In the same way, God stands ready to redeem Israel. He, he stands ready to redeem us. God is willing to pay a price for us. Well, in light of the, the pain that we can feel for Hosea and the pain that God must have felt for his people Israel, what shines even brighter than the pain is God's love for Israel and his love for us in that he pursues us even when we are unfaithful. So what exactly was all this unfaithfulness? Well, chapters 4 through 13 of Hosea address all of that. However, as I'm reading through that, some of the language is very clear and some of it is unclear to me. Now, it made sense to them because they were living through it, living in those times, and so they, they were tracking, but I, I wasn't able to track all the way through. So what were they doing? Why was it so bad? What does it have to do with us today? Well, when we look at the accounts of the prophets, any of the prophets, it's important to understand what was happening at the time that these guys were working for God. We already know that we have a divided kingdom, but that's, that's probably not the issue in itself anyway. So in my study of Hosea, I had to find the account of what these people were up to somewhere else in the Bible. And we have one clue at the very beginning of Hosea. And it says this, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. We get a little timeline right here as to where we are. So I went back to the narrative of the kings, and that would describe uh, what was going on during that time. We find that in two Old Testament books, uh, first and second Kings. A lot of it's also recounted in first and second Chronicles. But I found what we're looking for in second Kings chapter 14. Second Kings chapter 14 and verse 23 says, in the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, 
king of Israel, became king in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. Boom. There it is. That's who we're looking for. Because in the beginning of Hosea, it says that Hosea did his work for God during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash. The Bible goes on to say in 2 Kings that Jeroboam, son of Joash, did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. So we've got a couple of Jeroboams going on here. A lot of people calling their kids Jeroboam, apparently. So hang with me here because I want you to see what's going on here. This is the first king, and Hosea came in toward the end of his reign, and then he prophesied through the remaining kings of Israel, of the northern kingdom. And there were six more that followed Jeroboam, son of Joash. And I want you to listen to the common language that was used to describe these people. So after Jeroboam, the next king was Zechariah. He reigned six months. The Bible says, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. Sound familiar? Yes. Next was Shalom. Shalom only reigned one month. So the Bible didn't have time to say he did evil in the sight of right? But it did say some terrible things that he did do. His stuff was still in boxes when Menahem came on the scene. He reigned for 10 years. The Bible says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. Next, Pekahiah, two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. Next, Pekah, reigned 20 years. The Bible says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, sons of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. I'm thinking about this time the scribes were thinking, man, if we only had cut and paste, right? We could just... Finally, Hosea, last king of the northern kingdom, not Hosea, our prophet, Hosea, final king of the northern kingdom, he reigned nine years. The Bible says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. He did nasty his own way. The thing that struck me is this common language that says they did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. So who's this guy? Who is Jeroboam, son of Nebat? What did he do, and what does it have to do with us? It turns out you got to go all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 11 to find out who this guy is. And it turns out that he is the very first king of the northern kingdom. Now, back in 1 Kings 11, God had sent him a messenger beforehand. And in verse 38 of 1 Kings 11, it says, if you will listen to all that I command you, this is, this is God's messenger speaking to Jeroboam, sons of Nebat, the son of Nebat. If you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David, my servant, did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. So when the kingdom divided, he got the first seat for the north, and he proceeded 
to set a course for the people of Israel that they would not be able to overcome on their own. It was the beginning of the slippery slope for Israel. Since Jeroboam had moved to the north and his people were living in the cities to the north, he thought it would be more convenient for his people to worship closer to home. Makes sense. We do the same thing today. However, in those days, that's not how God had set things up. The requirement was that all God's people go to Jerusalem to worship, even though it was in the southern kingdom. Instead, Jeroboam went his own way and created his own system of worship. It seemed like the reasonable thing to do. It was convenient for the people that he was leading. No need to make that long trip to Jerusalem. In fact, I'm going to give you two options. I'm going to put one city in the very north of the northern kingdom, and I'm going to put one in the south, pretty close to Jerusalem, but not all the way to Jerusalem. Pick either one. You can worship where you want. The real deal was that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, was afraid that if his people continued to go back to Jerusalem, that they might defect and go back to being a part of the southern kingdom. To keep them in the north, he sweetened the pot by fashioning up a couple of golden calves for them to worship so that they'd have something tangible to look at and to bow down before. Golden calves? Is this guy not reading his Bible? This happened before with the same people, with the Israelites. You remember when they got a little anxious because Moses wasn't coming back down from the mountain? And they convinced Moses' brother Aaron, hey, fashion us up a little something that we can worship because we don't think Moses is coming back. And that didn't turn out too well for them. And it's not going to turn out too well for the northern kingdom. Now, altogether, from Jeroboam, son of Nebat, all the way to Hosea, there were 19 kings over the northern kingdom. And as we've seen, every one of them was bad. We looked at just the last seven kings a minute ago But let's fast forward through all of them and get to the end and see where this slippery slope had taken the people of Israel. You're going to find that in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 17. And it starts in verse 7. It says, all this took place. So all this is the captivity that the Israelites now find themselves in because of what Assyria had done uh, to them. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshiped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshiped idols. Though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees and accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. 
and were as stiff-necked as their fathers, who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them to not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Slippery slope. They incorporated other gods into their worship. Then they forgot God altogether. They had secret sins. They were wicked. They worshiped idols. They worshiped the sun and the moon and the stars. They were stubborn and prideful. They disregarded God's commands. They sacrificed their children. They practiced witchcraft and sorcery. They sold themselves. They let the culture influence them more than they influenced the culture. All of this because of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, the sins of convenience, jealousy, and pride. Can you see yourself in this list? I can see myself in this list. I've certainly tried to do things in my own power so that I could take the credit for it, but even that's an odd proposition in itself because it's God's gift in me that would allow me to accomplish anything in the first place. I may not have practiced witchcraft or sorcery, but I've certainly sought after significance and guidance apart from God and his word. I may not have sacrificed my kids, but I certainly sacrificed time with my kids on the altar of ambition. I've practiced a little Jesus plus along the way, incorporated a little wisdom from the world. Slippery slope. The problem is that unchecked over time, a Jesus plus faith can become a plus Jesus faith and then no faith in Jesus at all. I've been stubborn and prideful. You? Did we look any different than the culture around us? Ever disregarded any of God's commands? No? How are we doing with the command to go and make disciples? I know that sounds a little harsh, but the minor prophets bring a major message, and we're all in the same boat. But here's the good news, and the most amazing part. God is still inviting us back to a relationship with him through all of this. 
My friend Keith said this in the message to our students last Wednesday. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't write us off when we disappoint him? This is grace. And while God can't wink at our sin, he has to find a way to confront us and to heal us from our sin. He consistently pursues us regardless of what we've done or where we've been. Even though God stays after us, our response to that grace can't become a license for us to just continue in our sin. Remember the words that the Apostle Paul used when he set up that straw man argument. What, what should we do? Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? That, it, that God's grace can be even better? No, he says, no. We can never take God's love, his grace for granted. When we fool around with God's grace, it doesn't change God, but it could change us. We can drift so far that we no longer recognize God's love, that we become incapable of confession. Each time we resist, our hearts get just a little bit harder. Our conscience is seared. It gets easier and easier to continue in our sin. And when that happens, God hasn't moved we have in spite of it all god lays out the path of return back to hosea the 14th chapter starting in verse 1 he says return o israel to the lord your god your sins have been your downfall take words with you and return to the lord say to him Forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. First of all, come on back, God says. But make no mistake, it's your sins that have been your downfall. In order to come back, you're gonna to need to use some words. Take words with you. You're gonna to need to confess with your mouth that it was your sins. You're gonna to need to ask God's forgiveness. You're gonna to need to put all your trust in God, not in your country or your military power, and certainly not in the idols that you've made with your own hands. So that's Hosea's word to Israel and to us, because the path back to God is the same for us. Let me walk you through a picture. God has a design. We see beauty, purpose, and evidence of design all around us. The Bible tells us that God originally planned a world that worked perfectly, where everything and everyone fit together in harmony. God made each of us with a purpose to worship him, to walk with him, to enjoy him, forever. Now life doesn't work the way that God designed it when we ignore him and we try to do things our own way. The Bible calls that sin. It also says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And by sinning, we distort God's original design. The consequence of our sin is separation from God now and for eternity. Sin leads us to a place of brokenness. We see this all around us as well. We see it in our own lives. We certainly see it in the lives of the Israelites and the story that we've been talking about today. 
And when we realize that life isn't working, we begin to look for our own way out. We tend to go in all kinds of directions, trying different things to figure it out on our own. Maybe relationships, maybe money, maybe it's our career, maybe it's an escape. Brokenness leads us to a place realizing the need for something greater, someone greater. At this point, we need a remedy, some good news. Well, because of God's love, his mercy, and his grace, he doesn't leave us in our brokenness. Jesus, God in human flesh, came to us and lived perfectly according to God's design. Jesus came to rescue us, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He took our sin and our shame to the cross, paying the penalty of our sin by his death. The Bible says that God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was taken off that cross. He was buried, but God raised him from the dead. I've seen the place. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice that provides the way for us to be restored in relationship with God. That's good news to hear, isn't it? But hearing it is not enough. We have to take words with us. We have to admit our sinful brokenness and stop trusting in ourselves. We don't have the power to escape the brokenness on our own. We need to be rescued. We must ask God to forgive us to turn from our sin. That's what repent means, to turn from our sin and to turn to Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to trust completely in him. And when we do that, we receive new life through Jesus and God turns our lives in a new direction. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What does that mean, saved? Well, It's restoring us to God's original design in relationship with him. And he puts us on a new path. We begin to discover meaning and purpose in a broken world. Now we can pursue God's design in all areas of our life. He provides the Holy Spirit that empowers us to pursue God's design and assures us of his presence in this life and for all eternity. So, Where do you find yourself on that diagram this morning? Well, you might be thinking, I've already accepted Jesus. I'm I'm good to go. And that could be true. However, you know, as followers of Christ, we're not immune to brokenness. We continually depart from God's design. Maybe we have a Jesus plus faith going on. Or maybe we've slipped into a plus Jesus faith. What we need is a Jesus only faith. And I want to encourage you to confess your sin to God and, and remind yourself that you already are a child of the King, just like I have to do every day. And when we do so, we're forgiven and we're free to pursue God's plan for us in His perfect design. Maybe you've never taken that step to turn from your sin and to trust 
in Christ. You can do that right now. Is there anything that would prevent you from repenting and believing the gospel today? Jesus has done the work. He's taken our sins to the cross. If we confess our sins, the things that we've done to depart from God's design and believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, the Bible says we're forgiven and free to pursue God's design in our lives. It's as simple as telling that to God in prayer. Simple as, God, I know that I have strayed from your design. I've tried to do it on my own. Forgive me when I have gone off my own way. I believe that Jesus came to rescue me and that you raised him from the dead. And I wanna walk in your ways and trust in you completely. Something like that, simple. It's not the words that are magic, but you do need to take words with you to confess that you understand that you've gone a different way, to ask for forgiveness, that's it. Not the words that I said that are special. It's your heart talking to God's heart. Hosea wraps up his message this way. Who is wise? He will realize these things. Who is discerning? He will understand them. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Let's not rebel against God's design by staying stuck in our brokenness. Instead, let's heed these words of the prophet Hosea and walk in the ways of the Lord. This is God's word. And all God's people said, amen.